All right, hey, in just a minute, we're going to move into our sermon time, uh, and we'll read a scripture from Matthew together. We'll, we'll engage that together. Uh, but before we jump to that, today we have a really, and I mean this, like really a gift for our community. Uh, Chris McDaniel is here, and uh, Chris, yeah, yeah, I like that. Chris is the lead pastor of Trinity Anglican, which is a sister church of ours uh, down on the west side of Atlanta. And Trinity has been really meaningful both in my story and in our parish story. And uh, I love this. We've got a <laughs> steal in the show. That's great. Um, uh, Trinity has been really meaningful in the, the story of the parish community and, and Chris in particular in that. So uh, we are part of the same diocese or network of churches called Churches for the Sake of Others. Um, our bishop, uh, Todd Hunter, is the bishop of both of our churches and Chris is a leader in our diocese as well as being the lead pastor down at Trinity. And so it's a gift to pull him away from Trinity this morning to spend the morning with us and uh, got to hear what he shared during the first service and it's just a really meaningful word that we're going to get to hear here in a moment, but I just want to uh, just share so that you all know, there was a, a moment in our church story about three or so years ago where we were just in a place of going through transition, pastoral transition, transition of facility, the pandemic was going to hit a few weeks later, we didn't even know that part yet, a lot of upheaval and a lot of question marks around where does this community go from here, and in that moment it was Chris who stepped in and just had a, a sit down with our vestry and really uh, just showed up to us as someone saying, I've been through things like this before, there is a path that you can walk forward, and really guided us as a church community out of that bewildering season and into uh, a tomorrow that has been really redemptive and meaningful for our community. And, uh, and then on top of that, Chris has just become a really dear friend to me. And so once a month, we get to share a meal together, and I bring him all of my questions. Uh, you know, here's how the parish is confounding me this month, and then uh, Chris sets me straight on that. And so um, I'm just really thankful for Chris as a mentor, as a friend, um, as the healthiest Enneagram 8 I've ever met. And uh, so really glad that he's here this morning and uh, looking forward to hearing what he has to share. So Chris, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, okay, let's begin by hearing from scripture, we're going to read from the book of Matthew. Whenever we read from the Gospels, we like to stand together as a community. It's our way of rising to meet the living word of Christ uh, as it addresses us. So let's give our attention to the word of the Lord from Matthew. A reading from Matthew 21. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And, he, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? They argued with one another and said, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you 
by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later, he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Amen. God have mercy. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the teaching of Jesus. We pray that you would give us the grace, that you would give us the ears to listen today. Father, whatever it is that we brought with us this morning to church, uh, whatever it is that's out there waiting for us, good or bad or somewhere in the middle, we ask for the grace to put that aside to be fully present here, Lord. Help us to be really here. God, we acknowledge that in our world, uh, it is increasingly difficult to be truly present in any one place. And we pray, God, that in this place, for the next moments we have together, that you would give us the grace to set aside all the other things and to be here, to receive from you, to hear from you, to be taught by you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It is so good to be with you today. I bring you greetings from Trinity down on the west side. Uh, we're, uh, I'm honored to be here. It's my first time actually ever being in church with you on a Sunday. I've been in vestry meetings and I've been in people's homes in this church, but I've never actually been with you on a Sunday. So thank you for having me. I know you probably didn't get a vote, uh, but I'm so glad that these guys invited me uh, into this space. So I want to tell you just a little bit about myself so that I'm not just some sort of a random guy standing in front of you. Um, I'm married to Karen. We've been married for 26 years. Uh, we have a daughter, Maddie, who is 24, and she lives in London. She's working at a Church of England church as a youth pastor in Chelsea in the north of London. And we have a daughter named Scout, who's 22 and has three classes left at Georgia. Go dogs! They made me very nervous yesterday. And then she'll go back for her master's degree in accounting. So she'll be there for another year and change. And then we have a son, Finn, like Huckleberry, who is a sophomore at Georgia studying marketing. And so two kids in college, one kid in uh, literally uh, half a world away uh, for, for Karen and me. I'm excited, I think is kind of a challenging word to use about this passage. I feel like this passage has impacted me in a pretty deep way, and so I look forward, I guess, to sharing some of what the Lord has, has brought to me. I'm going to say five things to you uh, so that we can walk right through. I found that when you're holding especially some of the more challenging teachings of the Lord, it's important to chart a course when you walk through, and so we'll try to break it down into bite-sized chunks just so that we can try to hear and hold what is here in front of us from, from Jesus. The first idea that I want us to sit with is the idea of authority. 
Um, Jesus, the first half of this passage, people are quizzing him. They're like, who gave you the right to say things to us? And essentially, they're asking what people have always asked of Jesus. Uh, what do you have in terms of authority? Um, and I think that increasingly, for us, for those of us who live in the world in which we live, where we are deconstructing authority of all kinds, it is really important for us to wrestle with and contend with Jesus' statements about his own authority. Jesus seems to believe that he has the right to lay claim to our life, individually and collectively. And we live in a world where we increasingly want him just to bring therapeutic benefit to our lives. And the truth of the matter is Jesus does bring lots of therapeutic benefit. It makes us feel good. He communicates his love to us. All of those things are true and real. And yet in this moment, Jesus is claiming that he and his father have something to say about our life. So he's not just a bolt-on to a really busy life to make it a little bit better. And a lot of times, if we're not careful, that's kind of the way we think of God. I got all this stuff going on. Would you just sort of make it a little better? And what Jesus is saying here, and this is, I think, worth wrestling with. He is saying, we, we want to say things about your life. We want to direct you and lead you and call you into kinds of participation versus just, here I am, God, it's really busy. Can you help out a little around the edges? Jesus has and claims authority. The second thing is that we must learn to choose obedience. We must learn to practice saying yes to God by coming under his authority. Now, the whole point of this teaching moment is that Jesus is suggesting that we will flourish best when we learn to submit, surrender, and come under his leadership and authority. And I believe that one of the great invitations before all of us is practicing obedience and submission as we live our lives. So I want to ultimately submit to God, so I practice that submission by being in a mutually submissive relationship with my wife, by submitting to my bishop, by submitting to the, the input and wisdom of friends, by being in these places where we're doing house church, because you know the problem, do you know what the problem is with this room? There aren't lots, way more light than I've ever seen in a church service that I've led, the problem in this room is that you're all facing in the same direction. And that's not wrong for Sunday, but don't confuse that with what happens when you turn your chairs metaphorically and literally to one another. Because when I'm all of a sudden, like when Jordan and I have lunch every week, we're looking at one another. There is a submission that comes when you are faced with the mirror of another person who cares about you and wants to honor God. We have to practice Submission by being meaningfully connected to others, to institutions, because God wants us ultimately to be able to say yes to him. And so the story Jesus says and tells is a story about a father, an owner, um, a, a vineyard leader who has two boys. And the third thing we see here is what he says to the first boy. He looks at the first boy and he's like, I want you to do something. And the boy says, yes but then he fails to obey. 
And I don't know why he did this. I mean, in some ways, I think I do because I do this all the time with God. It's like my, my mouth says one thing and then my life says another thing. And he could have been lazy. He could have been stubborn. Um, or maybe he was just like in a tough spot and worn out and feeling a bit cynical. And he wanted to give dad what dad wanted to hear, but he knew that he couldn't follow through. The thing that I think about when I think about this son as an archetype for my life and yours, is that as the day wore on, his words lost meaning. And we live in a world where we put lots of inordinate amounts of emphasis on what we say versus sometimes what we do. And for this son, this child, his words began to lose their meaning. And as a pastor, I sit with people all the time and a a spouse will say, his words just don't mean anything to me anymore. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens over time. Or a friend will say of another friend, you know, his words, her words, they just don't mean anything. I don't know that I can trust them. That's true in our human relationships because again, it's where we practice learning how to really relate with one another because it's primarily true in our relationship with God. And so as I hold a story like this, I'm just confronted with the fact that your words and mine need to mean something. They need to matter. They need to line up with where we're actually headed. And so Jesus tells us a story, and he says, regardless of whatever it was that got this boy into saying one thing and doing another, his words began to lose their significance and their meaning. And so I just want to invite you to think about your life. Where are your words less meaningful than they used to be? It's really important for us as as humans to step back and ask that question on a regular basis. And I'll get to why in a few moments. The second son, he says no, but he ultimately obeys. He changes his mind, and I don't know why. Maybe he was stubborn. Maybe he knew that he didn't have it in the tank, and he was just like, I'm not doing super well, so no, Dad, I'm not going to go out there. But then something happened, and he changed his mind. He, he literally repented. Like the word repentance in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written means to change your mind. And it might happen like crying at the front with Sarah or, or in a confessional moment with Jordan But it might be less emotional than that. It might just be that you get to a point to where you realize my words are losing their meaning and I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to get back. I'm going to move back to where I'm supposed to be. Jesus tells a story about someone who ultimately changes his mind. August 1st of 21, I went to bed and couldn't get up uh, out of bed. Um, I ran out of gas in my life. And my wife called uh, the senior warden of our church and said, Chris is not doing well. Um, I don't know what's happening. Two days later, I walked in after calling my bishop and saying, I don't think I can keep doing life as I've been doing it. I walked in and told our staff that I was going to be stepping back from leadership in our church for the foreseeable future. And it was not because I had robbed a liquor store or got caught doing something sketchy. Thanks be to God. I was just out of gas and in that season where I really and truly was not sure I was going to be able to go back and do what I had done and y'all it's a terrible thing my resume is not well suited for other work (laughs) 
Jordan is certainly more eminently employable than I am. I, I looked at my resume and I'm like, I've been doing this since I was a child, basically. I have a doctoral degree that nobody cares anything about. And it began that season to occur to me, Jordan is also getting a doctoral degree that no one will care about. I couldn't even get my wife to read my book. Uh, so don't, don't hold your breath, bro. <laughs> I began to really wrestle with what does this mean to go and work in the field? What does it mean to do that? Does it mean I have to go back to my job? I just want to say this. There were three things at play. Really four. The father went to his children. So they, he's initiating. He's pursuing. They are his children, not his servants, not his slaves, not his hired hands. So he's, he's initiating. They're his children. And he says, I want you to work. And work in this context, and what I came to understand during this season of burnout is that work for me meant putting my life in play for God's purposes. It wasn't about where I received my paycheck. It was about letting my life be a place of participation where I did work in my relationships, in my heart, how I took care of my body. So it was like he's pursuing, I'm his son, you're his daughter, I have some participation he wants me to engage, and it's always today. It's not someday. It's not later. He wants to lay claim to parts of our life right now, right here, right now. Those of you who are old enough to know CCR, someday never comes. We live in a place where if we're always pushing it out there, it never comes. And one of the things that I really wrestled with during this time away was what does it look like for me to open up my hands and really participate? And at first that meant do nothing. And then it meant I want you to go back into places that are scary for you. Uh, when you hold a microphone and you disappear for four months and then you come back, for a full year and a half I got this. Are you good? <laughs> and then people would say things like, Hey, is that ever going to happen to you again? And what they didn't say was, because that kind of freaked me out. And so I had to say yes and show up in places that felt really uncomfortable. And I just know that I'm not the only one that has to do that. You've got to figure out how do I say yes and participate in life, maybe especially when you've got reasons to not participate. These boys probably had their reasons. They weren't just idiots. So I learned to pay attention. I learned to participate. I learned to say yes even when I felt unsure, even when I felt inconsistent, even when I felt afraid. And this is where I want to leave it. Our lives matter. Jesus is not speaking, and I don't even think he cares as much about what you say as he does what you do. I'm just going to say that again. Like we live in a, in a Twitter-soaked, image-driven world. God doesn't care as much about what you say as what you do. And I'm going to double down on that. The person sitting next to you doesn't care as much about what you say as what you do. And in that way, people with whom we enjoy meaningful connection are a mirror that remind us of what God cares about.
which is who you are. So I just want to ask you, where are you headed? Like, where's your life headed? Not what is your Instagram feed tell me about where your life is headed or what the sales team at your job tell you about where your life is headed, but like, where's your life really going? This is what I've come to learn about my own life. God has a plan for me. He does for you. And I've learned increasingly it has very little to do with what I do for my job. One of the great gifts for me is that I no longer identify myself as a pastor. I identify myself as a child of God who happens to be a pastor, who will be the same child of God if I'm not a pastor. So God has a plan, and it's not where your W-2 comes from, but he has a plan. He wants your life to head in a direction. Here's what I also know. Fear and insecurity and the hurts of life will knock you off your mark if you're not careful by about three degrees. Now, three degrees difference between me and where Jordan and Holly are sitting is no big deal. I'm still going to get to them. Three degrees, if I'm headed to Arkansas, will put me in the wrong town. Three degrees off if I'm headed to Europe will put me in the wrong country. Three degrees if I'm headed the other way around to Asia will put me beyond comprehension off track. I don't even know. This is why what Sarah did is so important. Praying the prayer of examine, learning to check in on where am I headed? Because if you wait a lifetime to do that, it's actually never too late, but the outcomes are not clear. If you do it daily, weekly, annually, you will find yourself having an opportunity to know where you're headed. I believe that being present is maybe the most important thing that you and me can hope to be. I'll end with this story. Uh, this is an apocryphal story, so meaning didn't happen. But I think it's true. <laughs> I'm not talking about the apocrypha in the Bible. That did happen. We can talk about that later. But this story is, is a metaphorical story. Um, a man incarcerated in Russia for a crime he did not commit. Spent his whole life in jail. And some days when he was in that prison cell, he would take flight in his imagination and he would go back and he would live in nostalgia. How good it was before he was incarcerated. Sometimes he would take flight in his imagination and he would go to a future where he had revenge on his enemies or where he was vindicated and he would feel that sense of like, I got my life back. Some days he would go back and regret so not just nostalgia. So fantasy, nostalgia, regret. And then he dies and he goes and he stands before God and he looks at God and he says, where were you? I lived my whole life alone in a prison cell. And in the story, God looks at him and says, I came to your cell every single day and you were never there. It took me in a new way, having my life begin to unravel for me to learn how to fight to be really there. The only place God can find you is right here in this present. It's why I prayed at the beginning of this sermon that God would give you the grace to be really here. Because most of the time we're only part here. 
He can't find you there. But he can find you in reality. And he can find you in the present. And he can give us the grace to repent when we're off track. And all that word means is to change your mind. That's all it means to think about your thinking. Father, I pray for my friends and I ask God for your grace. Lord, whatever it is that we are facing right now, whatever it means for each person in this room to learn how to say yes and to participate with their life, how to look at and examine our lives like Sarah brilliantly taught us to do today, I pray that you would cover us, Lord, and that you would help us and that you would show us your kindness. And God, most of all, I just speak blessing over this beautiful church, this family of believers. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you. Thanks for letting me share with you.